Probably all of us have memories of things that are meaningful for some good reasons and some for unusual reasons. And I want to share with you one of those that occurred to me. This happened in 2011 because Helen and I had decided to go to UK for a trip. So Helen renewed her Kiwi passport and I renewed my British passport, which had some nice wording in the front like, Her Britannic Majesty says, make way for this dude. <clears throat> and I thought, OK, so I will go to the... We were in Christchurch at this time, so we'll go to the immigration, well, the part that deals with this, in Litchfield Street, and right next door was the car park building. So we parked the car in the car park building and went in. And to my surprise, they gave me a number. And there was actually this thing on the wall counting the numbers. And I thought, well, I haven't seen this before. So after a while, I hung around and... I couldn't hear anybody in the room speaking English, and I thought, this is a, I felt a bit weird. So I left, and I came back an hour later, and the number had decreased slightly. So I went away again and came back again, and I kept doing it all day. Now, I had with me some documentation in a file box which proved that I had been paying taxes and rates for decades because I, we migrated here when I was six years old. So finally, I got called up at four o'clock in the afternoon to the counter. And I said to the lady, here's my application, and here's the, some evidence that I've been in this country for a long time. She opened up the file box, peeked in, and then shut it. I thought, oh dear. And then she said, I don't want to see a file box this size at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Stamp, stamp, stamp. And that's how I got my permanent residency visa. <laughs> For me, it was a milestone. I still like my British passport with the fancy wording in the front, but this is my home. I've lived here for a long time. I even speak like a Kiwi most of the time. And all of us have got milestones, which we celebrate through our celebration time. Things like wedding anniversaries, significant birthdays, birth of a child, water baptism, graduating, or a new job. And you might think of a lot more. And what I really appreciate is that when someone shares it, the rest of us all clap and applaud. Why? Because we rejoice with you. We, we think, yes, this is great. Some of us lack the courage to get up here and tell you that we're another year older, but we still rejoice. And that's one, of, one strength of this church is our sense of community and supporting one another. But did you know that the church also has milestones? Because when it began at Pentecost, this was a milestone. Never before had the Holy Spirit been poured out on a group of people like that. And that was the day the church was born. But the early Christians, a lot of them were Gentiles as they poured into the church. And they did not have a knowledge of the Old Testament. So what were the apostles going to do? So they worked out if they taught them the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount at least they would got, have something to go by. Now, most of the early congregations had a contingent of Jewish believers who could refer back to the heroes of faith that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. So they knew these stories and could share them with them. But for a lot of Gentiles, it was all new. Okay, I've become a Christian and it's wonderful, but how do I live in the culture that I'm surrounded by? 
So what used to happen was that the apostles would write letters to the churches. Now, because these Gentile churches were new and in a culture that is pretty much ungodly, they encountered all sorts of problems. So the apostles would write to them. Now, you have to remember at this stage that a lot of people are illiterate. There was a, like a higher class of priests who could read and write in their own language, but even among the Gentiles, not very many of them were literate. A lot of them were slaves. So this is why when Paul is writing to the Colossians, he says, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans for you, and you, for your part, read my letter to that, that one which is coming from Laodicea. Now, that one from Laodicea has been lost, so we don't know what he said in that letter. But it becomes evident that as the apostles wrote letters to these people, someone who was literate in the church would stand up and read out, hey, this is what Paul is saying to us. This is what is our response to our questions we've asked him. Which is why in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Because that's the way they were learning at that time. It was by hearing the word of God. Because they did not yet have access to the scriptures. So as the scriptures were consolidated, and it took the church a couple of hundred years to work out which was in the New Testament canon, they had this resource. But again, for many of them, it was what they had heard. And they relied upon the priest or the... Um, pastor to explain to them what it was all about. And then, when they got this all sorted out, the Dark Ages arrived. First of all, hordes of Huns turned up, just sweeping through, wrecking everything. In fact, one of the tribes that was pouring out of, Eastern, out of Central Europe were called Vandals. And they were so destructive that that word has become part of our English language. So when you call someone a Vandal, you are saying that they are some sort of heathen, horse-riding, fearsome warrior who's going to smash and burn everything. They were not people who read. They were not literate, didn't need it. You don't need to be able to read to be able to loot and to burn. Well, eventually they disappeared, and then the Vikings turned up, and they had a secret weapon called a longboat, and they would sail up any river, and they would loot it, burn it, burn the villages, and they were fierce. But in between time, the church, which had been sort of swallowed up by the state, had become wealthy. So when they heard that, the, say, the monastery at Lindisfarne had gold in it, because they, the monks used gold crosses and things, they thought, right, an easy target. So they turned up and looted it and killed all the monks. So they were fierce. Eventually that settled down, but in the 1200s, the Mongols turned up. And Genghis Khan had a saying, it's quite simple, surrender and be enslaved or die. Because they cared more about horses than they did about people. Now during this time, these dark ages, the monasteries were doing their best to preserve the scripture by copying out by hand. But eventually we get to the time called the Reformation and some key things happened. One of them one of the early pioneers, was John Wycliffe. And what he did, one of the things he said, 
Whitman did was to produce an English translation of the Bible. And the reason that he did that was because he said Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. After all, Moses learned God's law in his own tongue, and so did Christ's apostles. And when you think about that, Jesus didn't speak to his disciples in English. It was Aramaic, maybe occasionally Greek. But then something happened. Johannes Gutenberg invents the movable type in 1450. Now, if we're going to be strictly honest, the Chinese invented it thousands of years before, but the Europeans finally caught up. And this revolutionised things. Up until then, there had been a class of people throughout Europe, an educated class, who could understand Latin. And they could communicate with each other, even though they came from different cultures and different heart languages. But this meant you could move ideas across quite rapidly. There was a famous Dutchman called Desiderus Erasmus, and he was a scholar. He wasn't a great preacher, he wasn't a troublemaker, he wasn't um, one for public eye, but he was very gifted with languages. And he translated an accurate Greek New Testament in 1516. And when it was published, other reformers read it and said, aha, this is what the scripture is really saying. I don't have to rely upon what some priest is telling me or some monk, I can read it for myself. But the key thing was he said something quite interesting. He said, I long for the day when the husbandman shall sing portions of them to himself as he follows the plough, when the weaver shall hum them to the tune of his shuttles, when the traveller shall while away with their stories the weariness of the journey. In other words, he was saying, look, I would so look forward to when common, ordinary people like you and I have access to the scriptures they could recite them, they could talk about them, they could even sing them and hum them. That was his hope. Round about that time, two other characters emerged, heroes of the Reformation. One was Martin Luther, who, um, both of these were active about 500 years ago, who produced a German Bible so that Germans could read the Bible in the heart language. And around about the same time, William Tyndale produced an English one so that English people could read it in their own language. Now, of course, the Reformation was a turbulent period, but after these characters had started to do this and the governments worked out that they couldn't really stop these Bibles circulating around in the community, something else happened in England. It was quite sad because Mary, who was the new queen, was an ardent Roman Catholic, and she decided she didn't like Protestants, and she started burning them at the stake. I think she killed about 300. So a number of the English Protestants left and went to Geneva in Switzerland, where they'd be safe. And when they got there, they thought, what are we going to do? And one of them came up with a bright idea to produce a Bible, a new translation in English, but this one was absolutely brand spanking new. It had never before seen features like chapter headings. And wait, there's more. It even had numbered verses. Just in case you think these things were inspired by God, not directly. Now, these things helped people navigate around the Bible. And they even help us today. 
So it's been very influential. But the original authors meant for their writings to be read in context. Let me give you an example. In Romans chapter 7, verse 25, this is the, it says this. So then on one hand, I count myself, hand, one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now when I read this as a new Christian, I thought, hmm, I can identify with that. I want to serve God, but I've got some selfish desires and habits that maybe I should let go of, and occasionally I would give in to some temptation and I would fail and feel miserably guilty and have to repent again and again. And I think, I'm trapped in this cycle. Where is the answer to this? But it's not in verse 26. In fact, when you read on in Romans, there's some good stuff in Romans 8 about the security of the believer, but no answer to this struggle between the old and new nature. Then you read on to Romans 9 and 10. On Romans 11, Paul is talking about the Jewish nation. And you think, but where's the answer? I want to know about this struggle of two natures. Where's the answer? It doesn't turn up until Romans 12, where he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. And then gives some practical hints of how to do it. And in verse 12 it says, rejoice in hope. Now I don't know about you, but I really cannot rejoice just by sitting quietly in a chair. And I have seen many people watching sports events, and they rejoice by doing a Mexican wave, by um, raising their hands, doing a fist pump, jumping out their seats, hugging one another. They get excited. And when we get excited about God, good things happen to us. It also says we've devoted in prayer. And if you pray and you humble yourself before God, good things happen because your old selfish nature is losing its influence. And there's a second side to it. It says contribute to the needs of the saints. So give your money and your time and your energy to church, to mission, support missionaries, to Christian aid agencies like Tear Fund. And if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. So what Paul was saying was, think about other people, not yourself. And don't go out of your way to antagonise them. So as you're doing this, what's happening? Your old nature is reducing an influence. But you have to read the whole lot in context to discover that. Now here's a guy you've probably never heard of. His name was Richard Bancroft. He was an Anglican. But he did something that was so influential because what he did has influenced the Christian church for at least 350 years. He oversaw the production of the King James Version of the Bible, published a year after his death in 1611. And for many, many years, for over 300, this was the Bible that you had to have if you were a Christian. But unfortunately, some of the, because of the semantic shift, some of the words we read there don't quite make sense today. Now, in 1940, this is a picture of it from the island of Malta, the Maltese were about to get bombed by the Italian Air Force. The only Bible that they had was the King James Bible, by the way. And the British had decided to move their fighter aircraft to Egypt because they figured there was a greater threat there. So the people there, or the, the Air Force that was there, thought, what are we going to do? 
So they looked around the hangars and they found six old biplanes and crates. So they thought, well, we could fly three of them and the other three will keep for spare parts, which is what they did. Of course, when the Italians turned up and they were dived by three slow biplanes, they scattered, but then the biplanes had trouble catching up with them. But the local Maltese nicknamed them Faith, Hope and Charity after this verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, because it said, And now abideth hope, faith, hope, and charity, these three. Because these three were all they had. So they used them. But Paul was not talking about biplanes. And nor was he talking about the Red Cross or Tefund or any other charity that we now know of. So, because the translation was a bit dated. So in the 1970s, the Lockman Foundation turned up in America and they produced a new American Standard Bible which aimed to improve accuracy, modernise the language, which was really needed, and improve readability. So when you compare their version with the King James Version, apart from the abideth being dropped, it says, but now faith, hope and love remain. These three but the greatest of these is love. And when you read that, you understand what Paul was getting at. Because what the translators did is they went back to the original Greek and said, agape means love. And that's how they translated it. Now, one of the tools that I use when I prepare, and when I'm not, even when I'm not preparing, is a website called Bible Hub. I don't know if that's particularly clear, but along the top, there's a whole range of Bible translations. So you can read a verse of one translation and then say, hmm, I'm not sure what that means, or see what it means in another one. And you can click and you can spend a lot of time seeing different people's interpretations of what that verse means. And I find it very helpful. I'd recommend that to you. We also, in our website, have a resources page. And Craig has put some very useful stuff up there. And I'd recommend you have a poke around that too, if you want to dig more into your Bible. Why? Because everything in the Scriptures is God's Word. All of it is useful for teaching and helping people and for correcting them and showing them how to live. You'll notice that that's the contemporary English version, which I've only recently discovered. But it puts things plainly so even I can understand. So what helps us remember what we have heard? Because we need to learn scripture by heart, at least some of it, right? You don't have to learn the genealogies. So I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbour and ask them what's at least one scripture they can remember. I'm sure they can remember more, so we just pause and do that now. Some of you can remember two or three or half a dozen, Okay. So turn to your neighbour and ask them, what's the scripture that you remember? Go. Okay, if we can just draw that to a close. Afterwards, when you're having a cup of tea, you remember something that was inspiring, then you can share that with somebody else. But the fact is, when I was a new Christian, we would had some memory verses drilled into us. Here were some of them that I learnt early on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That one was really hammered. He that has the Son 
has life. And he that doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. And I found that one extremely encouraging. And then, of course, being a new Christian and a single guy, it didn't take me long to discover that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. <laughs> and then when I saw that when you please God, he gives you all things, I thought, ooh, if I match the two together. But it took me nine years to find the perfect woman. Now, some research done uh, last year by Time said this. We tend to remember songs and lyrics more easily than our own memories, where we kept our keys, or in my case, where I put my glasses, what we, and what we learned in school. It seems to be because of how often we experience music and the joy and emotional connection it brings to us. So that, that was their discovery, right? But 2,000 years ago, Paul said to the Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Because we remember things that we sing. We remember the tune. We get that extra aid. Whereas if you have to try and memorise a whole block of scripture or a whole block of Shakespeare or a whole block of anything, it's hard work. But singing, singing is a gift that God has given to us and it helps us memorise things. Now, the, coming back to the verse in Hebrews 2.1, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Unlike the people in this <coughs> image. One way we can do that is listen to a podcast. And our church does that. We have podcasts, and so do many other churches. So if you miss a meeting, you can hear what the preacher said. The other thing I've noticed is that sometimes, it's not, you, when you hear God, it's not through the preacher at all. Sometimes it's sitting down with someone over a cup of coffee, and they tell you about a difficulty they had, and how a verse that inspired them, and how they prayed, and how they got an answer. And what happens? You are inspired by that story, and you remember it. And I've met many people over the years who have inspiring stories to tell. I don't remember all the thousands of sermons I've heard, well, I suppose these days I could go back and check them if I wanted to. But the stories, the testimonies are really powerful. And each and every one of you has something that you can share with somebody else that really will benefit them. So don't re relegate those to not important they are. And then when you, at the right moment, share the right story, you can inspire other people. And when you also think back in your own life, when God has answered your prayers, it's encouraging. Because if God has answered prayers in the past, he can do it now. So what can cause us to drift away? Why, why is the writer of the Hebrews talking about this? Because sometimes we remember the wrong things. Instead of thinking about the good things that God has done, we think about our own failures. And if you continually dwell on those failures and mistakes that you've made, yet all it will do is drag you into a black hole of depression. Now, Asaph is one of my favourite uh, Old Testament characters. He was a Levite who wrote ten of our Psalms. And he was having a bad day in Psalm 77. And he said this, Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favourable again? 
Has his favour ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in his anger withdrawn his compassion? He was saying, has God forgotten me? Have I annoyed him somehow and he won't talk to me? And he was feeling down. But then in verse 11, he says this. He makes a decision. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. And then he turns to God and says, I will certainly remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and on all on your deeds and with thanksgiving. Your way, God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. And by the end of the psalm, he's cheered himself up. But there's a lesson in there for us, that when we start to think about the old things, and particularly when I've noticed that since I've retired, I've reflected back on my life. I did for the first year I retired and thought, well, this is depressing. Because like all I could remember was the mistakes and what if I'd done that and what if I'd done the other, it would have been different. And then I thought, no, it's not helpful. Let's just look ahead because I'm likely to live for a few more years yet. So, finally, my friends, keep your minds on whatever is true, pure, right, holy, friendly and proper. And when you do that, God will bless you.